Hi, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access video journal that provides the healthcare community with trusted and up-to-date information in hematological oncology through innovative digital media. Today, we're joined by four leading leukemia clinicians who have an insightful discussion on the treatment and management of FLT3 mutated acute myeloid leukemia. Hi, my name is Navul Davar, and uh, I'm very glad you could join the sessions today with the Vijay Hemong team. We'll be discussing the uh, updates on FLT3-based therapies in acute myeloid leukemia from the recent SOHO and EHA meetings. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have uh, some of our top FLT3-leading expert colleagues of mine here. Uh, we have Dr. Jessica Artman from Northwestern, Dr. Eunice Wang from Roswell Park, and uh, Dr. Amir Fati. Uh, from Mass General with me today. So we're uh, looking forward to a good uh, session and and I'm just going to go ahead and start with some questions here. Uh, So let me ask uh, Jessica. She's been working a lot on uh, some of the novel combinations, uh, especially with giltritinib, which uh, currently is uh, one of the two FLT3 inhibitors approved in the uh, relapsed uh, space, the other one being Mildstore in the front line. So uh, Jessica, with giltritinib, what are the future directions you're excited about uh, and uh, new combinations, et cetera. Thank you, Novel. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and it's great to be here with um, colleagues and, and more importantly, friends. Um, so uh, I'm, I think we're at a really interesting time in FLT3 mutated AML. We've gone from um, looking at agents um, in combination with induction chemotherapy, that's mitostorin. Um, and now have an approved agent in the relapsed space that's gilteritinib and looking to um, further improve upon those. So there are studies uh, looking at adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia who are fit for intensive chemotherapy and receiving an agent other than uh, mitostorin. So looking at uh, randomized studies of mitostorin and, and gilteritinib, for instance, or uh, crinolinib, um, and uh, additional trials that are being done in the upfront space for both those who are fit and uh, deemed uh, inappropriate for intensive induction chemotherapy. I think more specifically, you were probably getting at what are the uh, novel combinations that are being studied in the, um, the relapse space. Um, for instance, gilteritinib has been combined um, in an ongoing study with venetoclax. We've presented data already at um, ASH, and um, we look forward to hopefully presenting updated information shortly. Um, and we've demonstrated, as you well know, um, that there appears to be an increased response rate. Um, we're really interested in, in trying to garner more information about overall survival. Likewise, gilteritinib has been studied in combination with immunotherapy. Those uh, trials are ongoing and of interest. Um, and I'd be interested in seeing uh, what the rest of our colleagues think about other uh, therapeutic uh, uh, combinations. So let me turn it over to, to Eunice uh, on that note. So uh, Eunice, you've been doing uh, the frontline studies, uh, cronolinib, randomized study, and there are others, of course, ongoing with the Hovon group, uh, Giltritinib, 
versus Mido with induction, and then Quizartnib, which is actually the one that is the first one to complete its randomized study, uh, although that was only against 3 plus 7, and we hope to have data sometime next year. So what are your thoughts on the frontline space? Do you think we will beat Mitostorin? Do you have any preference for particular drugs? How do you see in the next two years, let's say, frontline induction FLT3 uh, moving? Thanks, Naval. I appreciate the opportunity to, to chime in here. So, you know, as you know, the newer generation FLT3 inhibitors are more uh, highly specific and more potent against mutant FLT3 than what we call the multi-kinase or PN kinases, uh, mitostorin and serafinib. And those original first generation, what we call FLT3 kinase inhibitors, were really designed to target a broad range of kinases or in fact developed for their ability to target um, tyrosine kinases in a variety of tumor types. So uh, when we just look at the early uh, phase one, phase two data uh, with some of the newer combinations, gilteritinib, quizartinib, and cronolidinib in combination with seven plus three, what we notice right away is that uh, each one of those agents has been shown to result with into a 80 to 90 percent overall response rate in combination with standard 7 plus 3 uh, for the treatment of upfront newly diagnosed FIT patients with FLT3 mutant disease. Now, as you recall, the ratified trial really only showed about a 50-55% CR rate uh, with the combination of minostorin and 7 plus 3. So improving the overall response rate by 20 or 30%, uh, we think uh, realistically could translate into better overall survival. We have some early data from a phase 2 study of quinolinib in combination with 7 plus 3 uh, uh, foundation chemo, and about two-year follow-up on that study shows an overall survival of over 70%. So I do think that given the very, very high uh, response rates with uh, the newer generation FLT3 inhibitors, that we will see improvement, uh, hopefully. But the answer to that question really lies in the results of ongoing phase three trials. We've been fooled before about high response rates in very small numbers of patients, uh, single center or limited center studies, and, and we've really seen uh, overall response rates and overall survival rates drop when placed into a broader uh, population of patients across many, many centers. So I think we'll have to wait and see, but I think there's a lot of optimism uh, for these newer inhibitors really changing uh, the paradigm and becoming the new standard of care for upfront treatment of flip mutant disease. That being said, uh, right now, when we use mitostorin in combination with 7 plus 3, the recommendation is always to proceed to an allogeneic stem cell transplantation in first remission if, if you are able to. And, and the results of that ratified trial are intricately linked to the use of transplant. Some of these novel inhibitors, if they are able to improve overall survival uh, uh, for that patient population, then we may be starting to think about not transplanting all of our patients uh, if we can get those survival curves up far enough. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so I think the other important practical point that I'll open to all of you uh, is, you know, we know that of these combinations, the first one that we'll read out will be probably quantum first, which is 3 plus 7 quizartinib versus 3 plus 7. And it was designed in 2013 before Midastorin had approval. And so that time, this design was considered to be reasonable. And, and of course, the FDA probably will still hold a statistical design. But let's say it is positive, which I would be surprised if it doesn't be 3 plus 7. How do you think uh, you and, more importantly, community doctors will view that? Will they say, well, yeah, but it didn't beat mitostorin, so I don't use it? Or will we just try to do cross-trial comparisons, you think, 
randomized trial will be needed eventually. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think that's a very realistic thing that's going to happen in the next eight to nine months. Um, any of you, Amir, Jessica, maybe Amir, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think if it, if it, if the phase three randomized study ends up being, oh, by the way, hi, everybody. Good morning. I hope everybody is safe and well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so um, I think if the randomized study ends up being positive, um, I think more and more people will start to use the drug. Um, you know, mitosaurin is a good FLT3 inhibitor, but it has side effects. It's not the most potent. It's not the most selective, as uh, Eunice was just saying. Um, so I think if quizartinib is, you know, ultimately shows that it is superior to 7 and 3 in combination uh, in the frontline setting, it probably will increasingly be accepted and used. The, as I'm sure all of us know, though, um, you know, quizartinib is fairly potent and selective against ITD, whereas mitostorin and gilteritinib and some of the other FLT3 inhibitors also inhibit the most common TKD variant. Um, so it is important, I think, if this drug gets approved that we, you know, disseminate um, that there is a possibility that some patients won't respond uh, as well um, and uh, that we should be thoughtful about using it. And also there is this chance of secondary mutations that arise when you use FLT3-ITD inhibitors specifically, such as sorafenib or, or quizartinib. So I think that is a consideration. But for a FLT3-ITD newly diagnosed patient, if that study ends up being positive, the drug gets approved, I think it will be increasingly used. I don't think that people will wait for a comparison to 7 and 3 with mitostorin. That, that would be my opinion. Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, I think what we were going to see when uh, when that data comes out, when we go to the conferences, is is what we see now is the graph of the uh, ratified trial here on the left-hand side and the right-hand side of the same slide. We'll see the graph of the quasartinib first trial, the quantum first trial, and then people will try to extrapolate by putting the two data. Uh, you say, well, A is compared to B, and then C compared to B, so then A compared to C is this. I think we're all going to do that invariably. Um, community practitioners are going to do that extrapolation. So I don't know that people are going to wait for an, another phase three trial to come out um, to, um, to really address that. I think one of the questions that people are going to look at very closely, given that quizartinib was not approved for relapse refractory flip-free mutant disease, is the toxicity of the combination, particularly the QTC prolongation, how many patients had that, what are those adjustments, are people going to feel safe giving quizartinib in the upfront setting with a cardiotoxic agent, given all of the uh, negative connotations that led potentially to it not being approved in the relapse refractory setting. Yeah. So I think moving, I think that's a good segue to, you know, these uh, mechanisms of resistance. And I think in the last three years, there's been a lot of data coming out uh, from different groups showing different mechanisms of resistance. So, you know, for a long time, we knew that TKD is the one of the main mechanisms of resistance to the type 2 FLT3 inhibitors or ofenib, quizartinib. And the argument was maybe the type 1 are going to be in general just better because that doesn't happen, which is true. But then we now know that, you know, RASMAP kinase uh, signaling mutations can occur in about 35-40% of the people who, you know, get giltritinib. And we don't know yet for canolinib, but some of the preclinical data suggests that may be the same pathway. So, uh, our fellow Dr. Alotaibi had a poster on this in the papers, hopefully will be out, where we looked at type 1 and 2, and we find that, yeah, that, you know, there is a mechanism of resistance and escape on both, 
and it's just different. And what was also interesting that we found is that we do see TP53 emergence. Now, I don't know if this was uh, true acquisition or this was actually just enrichment or enhancement. I think it's the latter, that it was probably there. We just couldn't detect it with the NGS sensitivity. We saw about 10% TP53, 10% IDH1 and 2. But to me, I think this is getting interesting, like CML, where maybe five years from now, we're going to actually look at the mutational profile and do some very sensitive digital droplet PCR or others at baseline and then select drugs. Do you think that that's kind of the future and that eventually we'll use all of these drugs, even if one is better than the other? What are your thoughts uh, on that? Uh, Jessica, maybe you want to Sure. I think you brought up some great points. There are a couple of other mutations that are also identified. There's the gatekeeper F619 mutation that can occur as well with gilteritinib, and there are occasionally BCR-ABLE mutations that occur. <clears throat> so I think you know, the more we utilize these agents and the more experience, clinical experience we have in following these patients at the time of relapse, the more we're going to understand what mutations occur and which ones need to be targeted and when. So I think we don't know, obviously don't know yet what to do. Um, I think um, that it's will be, I, I kind of wonder as we're thinking about these patients, if, if when we combine, have combination therapies, if we're going to see less resistance or we're going to see even a different mutational profile that occurs. So whether we're utilizing combination of chemotherapy and targeted therapies or novel-novel combinations, um, I think really, really remains to be seen. Um, I also want to piggyback on something that was mentioned previously, that not all tyrosine kinase domain mutations at diagnosis are also targeted by mitostorin. So um, there are some TKD mutations that mitostorin is not predicted to hit. And so, um, for instance, if we're in a situation where in the future gilteritinib is approved in newly diagnosed patients, um, there are a couple uh, TKD mutations that guilt hits that, that mito doesn't. And as we have more information, um, that may uh, be relevant as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, you know, this, and this is something we're also very interested in and working on trials with most of you in these settings is how the mutational escape is going to change when you combine these drugs, right? So if you give Ven and GILT, or even if you give Azev and GILT, my feeling is you're going to see a lot of uh, TP53 and these high-risk mutations uh, coming out because you're going to put a lot of frontline therapeutic pressure, but uh, eventually probably the leukemia finds a way. And so that then brings up the whole question and ideas of, you know, are there optimal sequences, you know, for these agents so we don't put too much therapeutic pressure up front. But I think this is going to be very uh, exciting going forward. I think the other yeah. thing just to stress is that it reminds us that at the time of relapse, we need to resequence. Um, and because you're right, there may be patients who develop an IDH mutation, and that's something that yeah. you can target. Yeah, or BCR able, you know, exactly. or yeah, or yeah. yeah. So I let think, me ask, go ahead, Amir. No, ahead, sorry. Please. I mean, I was just going to say, uh, I think uh, right now, and I think for the foreseeable future, we will probably have many more targets than drugs for those targets, uh, unfortunately. But I think, in, but I do think, uh, you know, ideally in the year, I don't know, 2040, 2050, we will be in a scenario where we will be monitoring uh, these patients over time uh, with, with serial uh, checking of mutational profiles and making decisions with uh, probably a variety of uh, targeted agents, um, depending on the patient and their tolerability and the side effect profile of those drugs. 
and try and keep them in remission for as long as possible. I, I'm not one to subscribe to sort of the uh, comparisons of FLT3 AML with CML. I think, as you mentioned, novel, I think it's a you know, different beast, uh, highly proliferative, much higher capacity for mutational um, develop uh, changes and secondary mutations and such. So I think it's a little bit difficult uh, comparison. The other thing I would just bring up, and maybe you were going to allude to it before I interrupted you, was you know, a lot of these patients, I think it, it does matter in terms of their age um, and their uh, disease status. So if they're newly diagnosed, relapse, young, old, because ultimately I think the setting in which these drugs are perhaps, in my view, most potent and most impactful in terms of curative potential is the maintenance setting post-transplant. We will see. Obviously, the, the phase three randomized guilt rhythm study is currently, um, we don't have the results for that yet. But um, it, it is true that, you know, to prevent the onset and development of mutations and the resistance of disease, you may, we, at this time, we try and get these patients who are eligible for transplant or have not been previously transplanted, at least most of them, to get to transplant and then do maintenance therapy to try and fix them. If we can, yeah. No, I was. I think you're. Yeah, maintenance. I think is going to be very interesting, and I, I think that you're right. I think the question is going to be whether this becomes more like Philadelphia positive ALL, where we found a really amazing drug, at least in our experience, ponatinib, which is fantastic and really just covers pretty much everything, and then you don't get these escapes, or whether it's going to be we are going to sequence, and and at least what we're seeing because you know we have a lot of these phase one B studies open with quiz and combos and and some of these new FLT3 inhibitors, that means that we're getting people with failed mito guilt, and then we're able to put them on some quiz combos, and actually they're still responding. So I, we're kind of getting more into this. There's no perfect FLT3 inhibitor yet, maybe some of them, but we're just kind of sequencing them uh, more and more, which I guess is fine as long as you end up improving the survival of the patient. So we'll see which way it goes. Uh, but maintenance is, I think, very important, especially post-transplant. So let me ask Eunice, today for your post-transplant a FLT3 mutated patient, are you routinely using maintenance or if not, what parameters guide you? And then if you do, what drug are you preferring? So that's a great question. So first of all, like, um, we do have a number of patients on upfront uh, clinical trials with a FLT3 inhibitor, and most of those trials include uh, maintenance after transplant as an extension of that upfront trial. Um, for patients who are not on clinical trial, uh, we are advocating uh, that all of them go on uh, a FLT3 inhibitor, and that's really based on the results of the SORMAIN trial, uh, showing that the addition of serafinib uh, post-transplant versus no uh, maintenance post-transplant for FLT3 mutant patients did result in a statistically significant improvement in, in relapse-free survival. Um, we typically would, at this point, favor, given the results of the SORMAIN trial, using serafinib as our sort of off-label uh, maintenance uh, drug of choice. Uh, for patients that were obviously on gilteritinib uh, prior to, um, for relapse refractory disease, prior to an allogeneic stem cell transplantation, as much as feasible, we do, in the, again, in the absence of a clinical trial, continue the gilteritinib uh, post-transplant. The reasons not to do that would be if they have significant active GVHD. That tends to be the, uh, the major reason uh, now with the introduction of uh, BTK kinase inhibitors as well as JAK inhibitors for treatment of graft-versus-host disease complications. We're a little wary about adding a second or third kinase inhibitor uh, to patients that are actively receiving those other kinases, although we have done so 
so. And it does seem to be helpful, but it does require a lot of coordination, at least in our service, uh, between the transplant team and ours to avoid toxicities. And also, you know, if somebody develops, for example, LPT abnormalities, is it due to the post-transplant gilteritinib maintenance or is it due to underlying GBHD? So uh, those issues can complicate it. I think the major question that's come up over and over, and, and I know we've all had discussions and thoughts about this, is if you put somebody on maintenance post-transplant, do you stop after 12 months? Uh, do you continue after that, right? Because um, given our experience with uh, the pH-positive uh, uh, malignancies, uh, sometimes we do stop after 12 months. Uh, but I think this is, as you said, a very aggressive malignancy. It mutates. There's clonal evolution. You talked about single-cell sequencing being something to pick out those mutant clones that grow out. So is it safe to stop after 12 months? What about um, 24 months? What do you, uh, what do you, uh, I'm interested to know what my colleagues are doing in that situation with uh, FLT3 inhibitor maintenance. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, we kind of, we, since you had the analogy of relatively positive ALL, I mean, that's something that Elie Jabour and Contagion in our group are very, very uh, strong believers that actually indefinite uh, therapy is really the way to go. And this is based on data that was shown at DASH last year where we did have about, I think it was 10 or 12 patients who stopped ponatinib, not because we requested it, but because of different reasons, financial, logistical, toxicity in a few of them. And we actually found that uh, three of those 12, uh, even after having a median of two years, ponatinib eventually relapsed at three and four years follow-up time point, uh, which is much lower than the about five to 8% we see uh, in people who continue ponadinib indefinitely. So again, small numbers, but you know, based on that, we basically kind of are pushing again to do what we initially would suggest, which is to continue. Now, FLT3 inhibitors, usually at least two years has kind of been what I tell my patients, and then we'll see, and haven't had too many yet on two years because we started this maintenance in the last two years. But what I'm seeing is the patients at least are not pushing you know, at that time to come off. You know, If they're doing well, they're on a good dose, gilteritinib is quite well tolerated, Many of them say, you know, doc, if there's any concern, you even 2%, why should I take that risk? So I would say we're doing it long-term, but I think that's where single cell sequencing, MRD, FLT3, PCR may help us. And we need to do kind of randomized phase two approaches where you stop at one year, two years, stop with MRD, not. Uh, but I would say at least two years is kind of what we're saying. But um, I don't know, Jessica or Amir, what your uh, process has been there. Yeah, very similar. Our... I think a lot of it's dictated by patients. For lack of um, data, based on some of the other maintenance trials, we've stopped at two years. At least we've told patients that they can stop at two years. But many patients, if they're not on a clinical trial and are receiving something um, at, outside of a trial, they will choose to stay on. Yeah, I, I just don't, uh, you know, as Eunice was alluding to, I don't think there is data here to guide us. So. We've done everything uh, in our group. Everybody kind of does what they want, one year, two year. I personally uh, think that um, AML is worse than CML. So why would you not continue indefinitely, especially yeah. if the patient is tolerating the treatment? Um, drugs like gilteritinib, in my view, are very well tolerated, usually in terms of long-term maintenance. Serafinib, you can run into some issues, as, as we were just talking about, in terms of GBH, uh, skin right. issues, uh, liver issues but overall relatively well tolerated in most. So when possible, I, Amir, personally would recommend indefinite treatment. Well, I think, uh, you know, we'll kind of uh, 
close it out there. I think single cell sequencing, I'll just mention something we're very interested in. And, and in the future, I think we're going to see a lot of these trials that are going to target urge, uh, early emergence of clones. Already there are some being designed. And, and uh, I think it's going to be very exciting, especially now with venetoclax, IDH inhibitors, FLIP3, and how we combine or sequence them. So thank you all so much for joining and uh, look forward to talking to you all soon. Have a great day. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Bye. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your podcast app, including Apple, Spotify and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHumonk and join in the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit VJHumonk.com for all of the latest updates in the field.